John Hawksworth, Chief Economist, PwC. Thank you for talking to the Cambridge Judge Business School podcast series today. We're sitting at the CBAM Global Business Symposium on BRICS and beyond. Uh, You looked at the prospects, opportunities and challenges in the future with particular reference to the world in 2050. Perhaps we can begin by saying, well, what's the state of the world now? Well, I think for the moment we have a situation where the advanced economies like the US and the big European economies still have the majority of the world economy. But what we've seen over the last 10 years is there's been very rapid growth in economies like China, India, Brazil, Russia, Mexico, Turkey, Indonesia. And their their influence in the world economy has become ever more important, not least because they've come through the global financial crisis much better than, say, the US and the UK have. They haven't had the same kind of disastrous recessions we've had. China's kept growing at 10% a year. India's kept growing at 8% a year. And their influence in all sorts of political spheres, everything from the, the IMF, the G20, the world climate change negotiations, is also going up. So I think we've increasingly realized that we're in a world where these emerging economies are more influential in both economic and political terms. Now, haven't you taken off a rather big challenge, perhaps um, chewed on it for some time? But if we're going to look at the world in 2050, we've got the G20, the G7. Um, How do you go about measuring it? accurately. Uh, Have you come up with a new model? I I believe you also refer to something called the E7 economies. We have a a model uh, which follows a fairly sort of textbook academic style of of looking at the supply side of the economy and it says that growth is fundamentally driven by four factors. The first factor is just the growth of the working age population and we have projections up to 2050 for all the economies from the United Nations there that we use. The second factor is investment in physical capital, plant and machinery, roads, buildings, and so on, and we can project forward what investment might be based on historic trends. The third factor is human capital, education, and, and we see that in many of these emerging economies they've been increasing their ad- average education levels, but there's a lot of potential to go further. And the fourth factor is really productivity, actually using that capital and labour better, and by effectively borrowing or you know, using the ideas from the established US and European economies, what we're seeing is that China and India and elsewhere are able to catch up with our levels of productivity and therefore supercharge their growth. So factoring in those four factors, we can actually project forward at least an illustration of where growth may go over the next 30 or 40 years. Now, of course, it won't be precisely accurate, but it can give an indication of their potential, assuming they, they continue to 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 pursue broadly growth-friendly economic policies, uh, keep their economies roughly stable, and also that we don't have some major global catastrophe like nuclear war or climate change of a disastrous kind. But if we look at those models we've had in the past, and they were also models about political governance as well, as well as economic governance, the the G20, the G7, your E7 economies, you felt a need to reshape those particular models as well, didn't you? Well, I think that what we've said is that you know, the E7, which is our sort of collection of uh, seven leading emerging economies, China, India, Brazil, Russia, Indonesia, Mexico and Turkey, could in the long term uh, actually be bigger and more influential than the existing G7. So if you like, the G7 has become, already has become uh, 
uh, a group that's no longer so relevant. Everyone is getting together in the G20 now to discuss things. But we think that this E7 group of economies will, will become larger and more influential over the next 30 or 40 years than, than the existing advanced economies. And also those emerging economies weren't hit as hard by the financial crisis as the more established ones. So um, if we take a snapshot of where the world is now, it's terribly important. We're sitting at Cambridge University, uh, 2011. Uh, It reaches out all over the world. We've heard the vice-chancellor of the University of Cambridge talk quite passionately about how Cambridge is in a special position in terms of you know, the biomedical industry, science uh, as well. But, but where are we now? It, the world doesn't seem stable. The Springer Arab uprisings, um, what's happening in Greece, even Turkey, it, it's all sort of in a melting pot. Well, I think there are certainly uncertainties around in the Middle East and around the Greek debt crisis and so on. But I think we're to some extent trying to look beyond those short-term volatilities. You know, I think there are always these volatilities in history. Look at the economic development of the U.S. in the 19th century where there was all sorts of civil wars, presidential assassinations, great depressions, uh, financial booms and busts. So it could be worse. So it could be worse. And, and what we're saying is that despite these, these short-term problems, the logic of economic development is quite strong. And that actually, for most of the last 2,000 years, the bulk of the world economic activity has been in places like China and India, where the bulk of the population is. It's only relatively recently, the last couple of hundred years since the Industrial Revolution, that the Western economies have, have become dominant. And what we're, we're saying is that over the next 30 or 40 years, as China and India and Brazil and other, other emerging economies continue to grow by 2050, we'll have returned to a situation where about half of the world economy uh, is, is, is contained in emerging Asia. But if we looked a 1,000 years ago, that would probably be 60 or 70%. So it's, it's a beginning of a return to the historical norm in terms of the East becoming more powerful. Uh, but it's, in a sense, it's, in a very long time frame, you can almost see that the Industrial Revolution happening in Western Europe and then spreading to the US was almost a historical accident. And that now we're actually going back to a more normal situation where it's Asia that's actually in the ascendancy. OK, well, I know your time is precious and you've got to get back into the conference, but you talked about the E7 could be larger than the G7 in 2050 and an overtaking period, almost, if you like, you, you earmarked the gear changes. Do you want to talk us through that overtaking period? Who does what when? Well, I think it depends on the exact measurement period, but I think certainly within the next 10 to 20 years we can see China overtaking the US. I think we can see uh, India overtaking Japan within the next uh, 10 to 20 years and becoming the third largest economy in the world. And I think longer term we can see Brazil overtaking Japan uh, you know, to become the fourth largest economy within the next 30 or 40 years. So I think that those sort of economies are moving up into pole position as well as economies like Indonesia overtaking Germany or the UK and Turkey overtaking um, Italy. So I think we can see that many of these emerging economies within the next 30 or 40 years are becoming much more important. Um, but I think from a business perspective, one also needs to recognize you know, two things. One, that those, those economies will provide competitors. There will be many uh, very important new companies coming from China and India and Brazil and competing with us, and so we need to recognize that threat. But also we need to see the huge opportunities because these will be massively expanding consumer markets and also markets for things like education and organizations with very good brands like Cambridge University that we're sitting in today you know, have enormous potential in, in markets like China and India that value education 
education very, very strongly. And, and whereas you know, the domestic markets in, in the UK may be quite mature and slow-growing, these, these big new markets can provide huge opportunities for growth for Western companies that can really seize them and can really uh, you know, make a success over there. Well, let's just um, look finally at the risk factors because you do have to deconstruct any model. And I thought one of the fascinating things about your, your model was the weight you gave to the world's populations as well because that was very important, the populations of the countries that, that you fed into your model. But the risks, China, the property bubble, that people couldn't buy a flat in Beijing, um, the deficits in India and Brazil, drugs in Mexico, and the political risks in China, India, Pakistan, the Middle East, and Indonesia, and the environmental crisis too, which we know about it in terms of floods, water, and Africa. Does it mean that within your model, serendipity is important? Well, it certainly means that you have to avoid major catastrophes and perhaps some of the most important uh, in the longer term around natural resources because economies like China and India are consuming vast amounts of energy and water and food and metals and that makes the prices of those go up and it makes the prices go up for everyone you know, in Britain and America as well. So there's a, there's a real issue about natural resources and also this is linked into the whole climate change debate about global warming because uh, they're burning a huge amount of coal and oil uh, as they have more power stations, more cars in places like China. And, and this is actually adding to the global warming problem. So there, there is a huge political challenge, actually, to actually get all of the countries together, US, China, India, and, and Europe, uh, and actually get some sort of global political consensus on how to deal with these issues. And this will require, you know, just as um, countries like China and India want more rights in the global political world, they also have responsibilities to actually play the game and to actually contribute to solving these global problems. So I think that will be one of the huge political challenges to actually solve things like global warming over the next 30 or 40 years, because if we don't get that right, then there won't be a future for our grandchildren and great-grandchildren, uh, you know, whatever economic growth rate we, we get over the next few years. So we might see emerging a huge world political consensus and Cambridge being at the centre of that. Finally, your conclusion, you said the top world economies in 2050 would be the US, China, India, uh, Indonesia, Vietnam, Brazil, the fourth largest, uh, Russia uh, overtaking uh, Japan. Uh, do you want to just say if you had £20 and you were going to Ladbrokes, where would you put your bet? Well, I think China will probably be the biggest in 2050. But I think India is a good outside runner, you know, to actually become, you know, potentially also overtaking the U.S. Although I, I suspect I may not be around in 2050 to collect on my bet, but maybe, you know, I can put it in trust for my children. John Hawksworth, uh, Chief Economist, PwC, Prospects, Opportunities and Challenges. Thank you for talking to the Cambridge Judge Business School podcast series today here at the CBAM Global Business Symposium on BRICS and beyond. I've learned so much. Okay, thank you very much.